Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Jesus as a poet. How so few of us look at Jesus as a poet, but when you really look at what he's saying and how he says it, how else can you interpret? And of course, that makes a huge difference in how we interpret his message. If we're looking at him as delivering a poetic message, delivering it through the tools of poetry, things change. We are such a literal culture these days. We take things so intellectually and literally. It's uh, hard for us to wrap our heads around something that is not so precise, something that we don't see as absolutely, literally walking from premise to conclusion, that is taking little detours along the way, that maybe what he's saying is something that is not meant to be taken literally, but contains this huge truth that can't be contained in words at all, just pointing to it. And so last week, as we were discussing this, we came right up to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about the first beatitude and how that changed in light of looking at his words this way. And then I was thinking about that during the week, and you know, our first year, 2007, I went through the Sermon on the Mount, and we were still over in the harbor at Dana Point. And then in 2013, I did a red letter study, going through all the red letters in the Bible, you know, just Jesus' actual words and uh, hit the uh, Sermon on the Mount again. But it's been eight years, and so I'm thinking it's time. It's time to do it again, because the sermon is amazing. The sermon is a masterpiece. The Sermon on the Mount is the sum of all of Jesus' teaching. And the sermon has always been a conundrum for the church. Don't you love that word, conundrum? So rarely have the opportunity to use it in a sentence. Conundrum. <laughs> something that is confusing, something we don't know what to do with. The church has not known what to do with the sermon for 2,000 years, and especially since the Reformation, since in the last 500 years, since the 16th century, as we in the West took this intellectual turn, it's been harder and harder to synthesize and to bring the sermon into our day-to-day -day use, into our day-to-day activities, and especially into the institutional church, because it's anarchy, basically. It defies our ability to be able to use it the way that we typically like to use things. So it'll take us a few weeks. It'll take us a few months. It'll probably take us to the end of the year, but we'll have breaks um, to, to maybe get through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But um, it's going to be so worth it. So much of what we talk about here in principle is illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought before we dive in again to the Beatitudes, that the, what we could do is just take a look at the big picture. It's always good to get a sense of where the sermon sits. What is the landscape? You know, what does the terrain look like? What are the milestones along the way? And so, and maybe give us ground rules for the interpretation so that we don't find into, fall into that conundrum trap of trying to take it so literally that we squeeze the life out of it. And there are four major points that I wanted to make this morning. And the first one is the one we've been talking about. The sermon is delivered like poetry. Now, it may not technically be poetry, even though Hebrew poetry doesn't operate the way English poetry does. It's not about rhyme and meter. It's about repeated concepts, you know, and it's about trying to use the same tools of poetry. So we've got metaphor. We've got hyperbole. Hyperbole is huge with Jesus. He loves to exaggerate. He loves to use these huge word pictures and concepts to try to get a point across. 
But obviously he doesn't mean to be taken literally. He uses imagery. He uses story. He uses so many things that poetry uses. And if you put his words back into the original Aramaic, there might have been some rhyme. There was certainly wordplay, alliterance, alliterance, and assonance, and all those things. Same uh, sounds at the beginning of the word, same sounds in the middle of the word, because remember we talked about it as being a mnemonic device. That Jesus was teaching an audience that had very little ability to write, or read for that matter. And so his sermon was delivered orally. It was tuned to the ear and not the eye. It was meant to be repeated, to be memorized, possibly even to be sung, certainly spoken out loud, over and over again until it was so internalized in the, in the people that they carried it around. They became the book, literally. If you ever heard of the song lines of Australia's Aborigines, it's the same thing. It's a portable culture. It's a portable spirituality that you never lose because it's in you. It's part of who you are. And this oral tradition was handed down from generation to generation. There were several generations, at least two, maybe three, before Matthew actually compiled and wrote his gospel. And in that time, there could have been contemporaneous notes, sayings, gospels, and you, if you will, just writing down the words of Jesus. But this sermon was probably used as an early catechism for the followers of Jesus, those first followers, before it was even compiled into Matthew or the same material into Luke, but in different order. I wanted to read just a little bit. When we talk about the poetry of, of the Sermon on the Mount, why is this so important? And there was a, interestingly enough, Richard Rohr in his daily meditations just this morning, I pulled a couple of paragraphs because it just seemed to be hitting the same thing we're talking about here. Um, Rohr writes, Paul was a mystic of the first magnitude. Okay, mystic is a four-letter word among many conservative Christians, right? Because they're looking at it as if it were a cult. And nothing could be further from the truth in terms of the way we're using it. Yes, Paul was a mystic of the first magnitude. So was Jesus. Jesus was a mystic and a contemplative. What's the difference? The mystic, as let me read Rohr, Paul was a mystic of the first magnitude, which explains why he was able to see Christ everywhere. When I use the word mystic, I'm referring to experiential knowing, experiential knowing, instead of just textbook or dogmatic knowing. In other words, it's not just all in the head. It's not just propositional truth. It's something that actually has been experienced. Jesus is exactly the same way. A contemplative is one who practices what needs to be practiced in order to get to the point where you are seeing this whole truth, this deeper truth, this unseen truth. So those four S's we're always talking about, right? Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. We see Jesus praying this way. We see Jesus instructing us in Matthew 6 to pray this way. We see him after a long day at the office heading for the hills, going by himself into the wilderness for days at a time to pray this way. The difference tends to be that the mystic sees things in their wholeness, their connection, their universal and divine frame, instead of just their particularity. Mystic, mystics get the whole gestalt in one picture, as it were, and thus they go beyond our more sequential and separated way of seeing the moment. In this, they tend to be closer to poets and artists than to linear thinkers. Why is that? Because you can't possibly express the inexpressible experience that you've had in spirit. It doesn't contain that. You cannot do it. The best you can do is point to it. Well, who's good at pointing to things? 
in language. Well, it's a poet, of course. And so there is no other way. When you read any of the great mystics, especially of the medieval time, then you find out they're all using this kind of language because it's the closest they can come. Obviously, there's a place for both perspectives. But since the enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries, there has been less and less appreciation of such seeing in wholes. We limited ourselves to rational knowing and the scientific method. So in our time, this deep mode of seeing must be approached as something of a reclamation project. I like that. So it's interesting. The Reformation came in the 16th century. Hard on its heels came the Enlightenment. And so the Reformers looked at the book and said, okay, all of God's revelation is coming from this book. And then in the following century, it's like, we're going to look at everything from this completely rational and objective and logical premise. And so the Reformation told us what to look at the book, and the Enlightenment told us how to look at the book. And we've lost the sense of mysticism, the sense of poetry, the language that is pointing us to something that we'll never be able to comprehend in our minds. The truth of the matter is the entire Bible was written by mystics. Evangelicals are rolling in their graves right now, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that we're using this in a different word than they understand, or typically understand it. The, the prophets of the Old Testament, they, they saw visions, they dreamed dreams, you know, they spoke in poetry. Isaiah is one of the greatest poets who ever lived. They see the whole truth, and they write about this whole truth, and they write it in a mystical and poetical way. Well, maybe not Leviticus, but all the other ones. <laughs> and contemplatives are the one who's practiced being able to get to this place. And Jesus as a mystic and contemplative in the Gospels are displayed both characteristics of him, both a contemplative and a mystic. And he was a poet. He taught poetically. Even if you can argue that it wasn't technically poetry, it still functions as poetry, has all those elements. And the Sermon on the Mount is a balance, a poetic balance of knowing and loving of thinking intellectually and doing or being experientially. As we read last week and from the cloud of unknowing, we can't approach God intellectually. We can't approach God by thought. No thought can contain God, but we can embrace God by love in experience. And love understood as the identification with the beloved. Not an emotion, not a feeling, and not even behavior, but identification, the, the feeling and the knowledge of connection, that we are one and the same. Because truly, only when that connection is experienced in real time does this love we're talking about become real at all in any way. We have to feel it leaving ourselves for someone, especially someone undeserving, to understand how God's love flows to us when we see ourselves as undeserving. How can we possibly get our minds around something like unconditional love until we see it starting to be in action in our own lives? Jesus was understood as the way. Jesus called himself the way. And the first followers of Jesus understood that Jesus' way was not propositional truth to agree to or with, but it was a process to engage a way to experience truth, but truth as a person. What is truth to Jesus? Well, truth is a person of his Father. We're not talking about data here, information here. We're talking about the actual experience of a person and the freedom that comes 
from that exchange. All in the second point, all of this has to fall in the context of kingdom, what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus' arch metaphor, right? You've heard of an arch enemy. Well, this is Jesus' arch metaphor. This is the main metaphor. He hangs all of his teaching on this idea of the kingdom of heaven, which is both the picture of life lived in truth and freedom, right? But it's also the way to life lived in truth and freedom. The kingdom is both. It's the way to and it's the experience of. And it's critical for us to understand that this kingdom is not heaven. In Aramaic. Literally, if we translate it the best we can into English, would be the reign of unity. The kingdom is not a place. It's not a territory. Kingdom, Malkutha, is the principles by which the king reigns. That's probably the best way to look at it. It's, it's the character of the king being splayed across the people. And God's name, heaven being a substitute for God, because Luke is it's Malkutha Dalaha, the kingdom of God. Same thing. But God's name means unity, oneness, multiple things functioning as one. And so... When we think of kingdom as the heaven of the next life, we're missing the point that kingdom is always here and always now. It's not a place. It's a quality of life. And if we take a look at a few little little verses in Matthew, we can start to understand, and I think we read some of these last week, but in Matthew 19, 14, Jesus said, Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And that's an unfortunate translation. But it's one that we see a lot in English. Because then it looks like the kingdom can be possessed. It can be owned. That it still is a territory that we enter and somehow we can inherit it or own it. But if you look at, for once, the King James takes primacy over the national NASB. But Jesus said, allow the little children to come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the difference? If you translate directly from the Aramaic, same passage, allow the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for of those who are like these is the kingdom of heaven. The idea here is that we don't go to or enter the kingdom. That's a poetic device. We recreate the kingdom God's reign, God's will, if you will, first in our hearts as we become like these little children, as we become what the Beatitudes are describing as the attitude of kingdom. And then when we have assimilated that, when we have become that ourselves, then it can be played out in our communities and our relationships. But it's always moving from inside to outside something that you always have to understand about the kingdom. At Luke 17, Jesus says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And that Greek word there, entos, means in your midst, among or within, all at the same time. It's one of those multi-use prepositions. But the Aramaic is even more interesting. Legao men means moving dynamically from inside to outside. Kingdom always moves in that direction. And so important for us to understand that the kingdom is not a place. 
It's not something we go to. It's something we literally become. We are the kingdom as we move into this place. The last point. The sermon is not a code of conduct. It's not a law to obey. And this is why it's a conundrum for the church, because the church has looked at it from a legal point of view. We typically look at it from a legal point of view, because that's what we do, right? We're looking for a mathematical equation, something that can take us from point A to point B. We want clear-cut rules to obey that will equal the outcome that we're looking for. But it's not that. Because if you look at it through a legal lens, then the commands of the sermon are impossible. They're absurd at points. They're irrational. Everybody knows we're not supposed to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands and feet. We understand that that's not literal. But we don't necessarily understand that when we have maybe a lustful thought, that's also supposed to be equally guilty with adultery or an angry thought being equally guilty with murder. And it's maybe as strange as that sounds to you, there are churches who teach exactly that. And so it messes with our heads because we don't know. If we're looking at it from a legal point of view, what do we do with it? We end up having to pick and choose what we're going to follow and what we're not going to follow. And of course, that's never a healthy way to administer an institution or a church. What Jesus is really doing is not giving us literal commands. He's giving a poetic image of what the Father's love looks like in human form. What does it look like in a human being? What does it look like when it's played out in human relationships and human communities? What does it look like in our hearts, in our communities, in our relationships? Because the sermon is not law. The sermon is gospel. And what's the difference? Law is man approaching God through his or her own effort. And Paul talked about this, right, in Ephesians 2. He said that we're saved by grace, that is love, through faith, not by our own efforts. It's a gift of God, absolute gift of God, not by works so that none may boast. So he's telling us that law is not the answer. We can't approach God through our own efforts. What is gospel? Gospel is God approaching man with a free gift. But here's the catch. There's always a catch, right? (laughs) The gift of God's love, the gift of God's acceptance and approval is absolutely free. There's nothing we can do to affect it. But the ability to accept that gift, to actually receive it, is not free. It must be worked out in the process of the way. Paul talked about this too, right, in Philippians? We have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, which we said doesn't mean being afraid or terrified. Working out your salvation in respect and passion would be a better way in our language to put it. But the point is there's still something to do. Not to earn God's acceptance. We already have that. But so that we can actually see that it's there. We can realize it in our lives. We can actually move into that gift. To be able to see the radical oneness of God's love, we have to go back to where it all began. The process of the way literally brings us back to the garden. That story of the Garden of Eden, right? We've got Adam and Eve walking in complete oneness in the coolness of the evening with their Lord. But the moment that they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are separated. 
Now, it sounds like it's a punishment there, but it's not. We needed to eat of that tree. We wouldn't be human beings if we didn't have the knowledge of good and evil, if we didn't have self-awareness, if we didn't have the ability to think the way that we think. But the side effect, the other side of that sword of being able to choose the part of us that's created in God's image is a part of us that can see ourselves as separate from, in competition with. We spend our entire spiritual journey being able to come all the way back full circle to the garden and walk in the garden in the cool of the evening with our Lord. But now it's volitional. Now we have chosen it. It's not just who we are at a certain stage of development. But that's the work that needs to be done. And it's not done easily, unfortunately. It's a very difficult thing to do because, as Jesus says, you need to sell everything you think you have, everything that you possess, in order to be able to follow where he's going into that radical kind of truth. So that's the big picture, those four points. If we can look at the sermon with that kind of vision, we're going to see something very different than we normally do. And this conundrum, this, this confusion, this difficulty is going to start to melt away as we read things from a Jewish point of view, from an Aramaic point of view. If we drill down a little bit, Matthew gathered these sayings, he compiled them, and then he structured them. Maybe for the first time in Matthew's gospel where they structured this way, even though there were probably written accounts of Jesus' sayings. But since Luke puts them in all different places and spread out through his, his gospel, then perhaps Matthew was the one who first put them into these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But of course, it wasn't that way originally. Do you know that there were no chapters or verses in the Bible at all until the 16th century? Think about that for a second. No chapter headings, no verse numbers. It was just complete run-on sentences there. But, but think about that. Until 1600. Now, this is after the Reformation. This is when things started getting really hyper-intellectual I was talking to you about before, right? Think about the difference between Bible study before there were chapter and verse headings. You couldn't tell someone where you were reading. You couldn't point to where they were go you were going. You couldn't have this cross-connect and this dialogue. It just shows you that Scripture was handled so differently for the first 15, 1,600 years after the crucifixion. It was handled devotionally. It was handled mystically. It was handled poetically. It was very different. Now we've got it just down to the granule level of chapter and verse and all of the, you know, debating and everything we do. Just a very different way. So just know Matthew 5, 6, and 7 didn't exist until about 500 years ago, 400 years ago. Just kind of mind-blowing for me. Maybe not for you, but okay. <laughs> so just taking a look at the structure, in Matthew 5, what Jesus first does is give us a picture of the final product. You probably heard, you know, what you want to do when you're presenting something to someone is that you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them, Right? All right, so we're going to build a birdhouse today. So here's a picture of the birdhouse. Here's the exploded diagram. Here's what it looks like. Here's what you're going to have when we're done. Now here's the step-by-step -step instructions. And just to recap, all right, here it is again. Here's the bird inside making the nest. Everything's wonderful. So Jesus kind of does that. He starts out, here is what the finished product looks like. In these Beatitudes, we have facet after facet of the type of character, the type of person who is the kingdom not who enters the kingdom or possesses the kingdom, even though I know the words are going to look that way. But this is the type of person who is the kingdom. So here's the finished product. 
And now we're going to talk about the effects of that product with the salt and light and some of the things he talks about. And then he dives in for the rest of the chapter into a redefinition of the law, sometimes called the six great antitheses. He's going to go step by step through things like murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and different things that were of issue in his first century culture. And he's going to redefine the way that people look at that because it's so important for them not to be thinking legally, not to be thinking if they just follow the law, everything is okay. You aren't going to enter kingdom by following the law or by just being obedient. It's when their transformation takes place inside. And so we got to throw that out, not completely, because he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I'm going to fulfill it in a different way. And Jesus wasn't the first one to say this, you know. The prophets before him. This is a thread that comes through all of Jewish tradition, but Jesus is refining it and taking it to a higher level. In Matthew 6, he's going to redefine righteousness. The Jews define righteousness by several things, by their prayer, by their almsgiving, and so on and so forth. He's going to take that and turn that on its head, very much the same way he did with the law in the previous chapter. And in Matthew 7, he's going to talk about actual practice, What does it look like when we put these things into practice? How does it change the way we relate to each other? How does it change the way our communities live their lives out? And so when he's just doing this, and we've got this structure here, he's meant to do several things with us. And the first thing is we have to unlearn the things that we think we know. This comes under the heading of selling everything that you own, giving it to the poor, and following. We have to unlearn first. We can't fill a full vessel. We have to empty the vessel out. And if you're not willing to do that, God loves you. But this is pretty much, he would, he would say you have your reward in full. That was his way of putting this. You got what you're going to get, all right? But if you're willing to unlearn, then you can start to learn something new, a new paradigm, a new concept. But that is only as good as your willingness to do the third part, which is actually engage in a process, engage in new activity, taking it into another direction. Because it's only in action, it's only in this journey, this process, that we can find our way to the Father, to love, to truth, and to the freedom that comes from all of that. Now, the Beatitudes are this picture of the finished product. At the same time, it's the image of God. God isn't telling us to do anything that God doesn't do himself. If we are in the image of God, what is that image? Jesus is trying to refine that for us, to show us what that looks like, who his Father looks like. And so the Beatitudes are not only the picture of the finished human product, it's also the mirror image of God. What does God actually value? And I suppose, what does God actually bless? But we've got to be careful here if we're going to talk about blessings. Because blessings in this context are going to mean something different. Let's, um, let's really quickly just read through the Beatitudes and look at the structure of it. So Matthew 5, starting right at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you already you see the poetic structure of it. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Some of the Psalms do this. In fact, some of the Psalms will have an acrostic for each first word is also going to spell another word. And, and so these are poetic devices in Jewish poetry. We're going to just look at the first three today. But you see that poetic structure. You see that word blessed over and over again. Well, blessed in Latin, which is where we directly got this, is beatus. And if you ever wondered why it's called the beatitudes, it's not because they're beautiful. It's not because they're the beatitudes. No, it's just beatus. Beatus, the, the Latin word for blessing or blessed is all just taken as the title of this passage here. So in Latin, it's beatitus. In Greek, it's makarios. And in Aramaic, it's tobe. And as we talked about last week, tobe is related to taba, the word for good, which we've gone over so many times here. really means ripe. It really means mature. It means ready for prime time. It means able to work to manufacture specifications, if you will. So something a little different. So tobe, to be blessed here, really means to be ripe, to be mature. It means to be whole, to be balanced, to be enriched, to be healed. It can even mean congratulations to you. There's a lot of different ways that this can be looked at. But here's the most important thing to understand about these blessings that Jesus is talking about. They are not passive. All right? This is not a blessing or a reward or an approval from God in the normal way we think about a blessing. Some approval from God that was withheld until we performed correctly, like a trained seal. This is not the idea here. Because once again, this kind of blessing comes in the opposite direction, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. It's an active realization, an active becoming one with this truth, with this person, with this freedom, with this love. These blessings are not bestowed upon us. They are realized in the journey that we take, in the process of Jesus' way, if we will actually follow it. At the same time, we can only love because God loved us first, right? So even though we're saying we're realizing this in ourselves, if we remember our relationship with God, that'll keep us right-sized, all right? We're not, we're not moving into... A, we are God territory here. We are still mirroring. But the important thing is to understand is the blessings, we're not waiting for them to fall on us if we perform well. We are realizing them from the inside out. We are transforming from the inside out as we move down this experiential path, as we live our lives and our relationships this way. So let's take a look at the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these first three, if you look at it, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, they're all related, but there are subtle differences as well. But poor in spirit is a difficult one for us. We talked about this last time. For how many before we talked about this was poor in spirit a positive term for you? We normally look at it as something negative, don't we? It's someone who is lacking in spiritual gifts. It's someone who is not spiritually aware. You know, they got some kind of problem. And Luke even makes it worse. He just says, blessed are the poor. So we don't even have the in spirit part. So what's he talking about that? You're blessed if you're just 
poor? If you don't have financial resources? Well, what the heck is that all about? And why would you be blessed if you're poor in spirit? Well, this is a Aramaic idiom, meskina ruch. And literally, it means having an attitude of poverty, but even if you're rich. It means humility. It means vulnerability. It means the awareness of your own dependence, but in such a way that you're absolutely grateful still for the provision of God, that you have learned to be completely reliant on God because nothing else is working for you. You know, There's no one else coming to your rescue. You can't seem to pull it off by yourself. So to have that sense of fearless vulnerability, of joyful dependence, is the attitude of the anavim. And we talked about that. That's a, this is another theme that runs through the entire 66 books of the Bible. The anavim are those people that I just described. They're looked at as the ideal attitude, the ideal spirit that can appreciate God. Day to day, moment by moment. And these anavim, and any one of us who wants to be able to live in kingdom, to live with that quality of life, has to be able to do two things with your life. The first one is to be able to accept life on life's terms, regardless of what's being dished up at the moment, good, bad, or ugly. To accept life on life's terms without medicating it, without avoiding it, without doing anything to try to change it or your consciousness, to be able to lean in and be present to every moment and accept it for what it is because it's part of life. And secondly, to be able to do that with a sense of hope and gratitude and a knowing that everything is going to be all right. Joyful dependence, right? Fearless vulnerability. If we can do that, we are becoming anavim. And that's a prerequisite to being able to see God as God is. What's the first step of AA? Came to admit we were powerless over fill in the blank, that our lives had become unmanageable. That acceptance of powerlessness, that doesn't mean you're a victim because you still have a choice, but you don't have power over the outcomes, only the process. That's so important to know. If we can still work the process but hold lightly to the outcome, we are on the way of Jesus. To do that, to let go of the illusion of control that we so crave and pretend that we have in our egoic minds, to step away from that as well, to sell everything that we own and think that we need to survive, to stop living for these outcomes, to allow each moment to be enough, now we are moving into the vicinity of the Anavim. And this is a completely alien way for us to live. Always has been. Jesus is teaching these things to his people just as much, but even more so in our modern Western culture. Vulnerability is not a positive thing in our culture. We don't value it. We don't esteem it. We don't lionize it. We want the people who've got all the power. Those are the people we make cartoons about. Those are the people we want to be. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's trying to turn it around and show us there's a different way to live. And if you can start approaching this, more and more of this truth, this person will become visible to you. Second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, once again, is mourning a positive term in your vocabulary, in your lexicon? Of course not. Nobody wants to mourn. Yet we're blessed if we mourn. 
what in the world is Jesus going for here? Now, like poor in spirit, it's viewed as a negative, but the word there, ebal in Aramaic, listen to what it means in its roots. To be in confusion, to be in turmoil, to wander, both literally and figuratively, looking deeply for something to occur, weak from want, from such longing. whole different spin on what it means to mourn. Now, if you think about it, any loss that we experience is going to put us in turmoil. It's going to put us in confusion. It's going to set us wandering. Any loss, especially whether it's a death, loss of a job, whatever it happens to be, loss of health, is going to also attack our sense of identity, who we think we are in our egoic minds. That is something that puts us in turmoil. That is something that disturbs us to the core. But Jesus says, if you will continue through that, if you will persevere through that, if you will lean into that place of wandering, then you'll be comforted. Bayan nepayun in Aramaic, which means returned from the wandering, becoming united, reunited, that there's an interconnection that takes place, that you will literally see the arrival, the face of that which you longed for. And so this loss puts us in this wandering turmoil, this loss of identity. But if we continue on, we're going to be comforted. We're going to return. We're going to see the arrival of that thing that we're looking for. If you consider what Jesus' way is all about, you see that he's looking way beyond our sense of mourning, our sense of mourning for someone or something that we lost. Every time we lose something, we are set on another, what's sometimes called a hero's journey, another circuit that we can take. And if you think about it, every time we do that, we need to be willing to sell everything we own, pick up our cross daily, deny ourselves, which doesn't mean just deny our material comforts. It means literally to deny our own sense of identity, to step away from that and see what deeper identity we can find. That descent before the ascent we're always talking about, the Paschal mystery, right? The descent, the letting go, the emptying before we can, the unlearning before we can learn, before we can ascend again on the other side. Our willingness to be disturbed in this way, our willingness to be in turmoil and confusion, to wander for a time through this process and this journey, this way, is why we will be comforted, how we are comforted. And it's another quality that we must have. Are we willing to see purpose in the pain that allows us to continue on and to persevere? With gratitude, with hope. The third beatitude. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So once again, the meek or the gentle, makika in Aramaic. It can mean humble. It can be meek and gentle. But when you get into the roots, it means one who has softened what is unnaturally rigid or hard inside. There's images of melting. There's images of bowing down. And so there's images, of course, the idea of submission, of surrender. But to soften what is hard inside, I love that image. And it's so descriptive of what goes on in someone who finally achieves a sense of humility, 
What is it about that pride? What is it about those core beliefs and those compulsions that have us so tied up and fisted knots? When we let that soften, when we let that melt, when we finally bow down and find that joyful dependence, find that fearless vulnerability, then we will inherit the earth. Okay, here we go again. Looks like possession, right? What are we possessing here? What do we earn? But yiret ara is another idiom, another idiomatic phrase in Aramaic. It doesn't mean acquiring a piece of property. It means to receive strength. It means to receive empowerment, sustenance from the earth, all of nature, from God who supplies all of nature. It's literally having a place to stand, having a place to belong, you have this place to stand. And from there, derive your power like a rooted tree. Derive all your sustenance from the earth to be sustained by this place. And for the first time, possibly knowing who you are, having a sense of identity that goes way beyond just the bubble of our own self-awareness. Now, these three, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle, meek, they're all similar and they're all related but they're subtly different at the same time. Jesus is filling in a picture. And as we go through the rest of them in the coming Sundays, we'll see how they all relate to this one person who is kingdom. What is it that you want in life? Have you ever thought that far? Have you really boil it down to what you want in life? Now, Maslow has his hierarchy of needs, right? And it starts at the bottom with just basic survival stuff, just, you know, food and the basic things of life. And then it moves up into more subtle things as it it goes. Keating, Thomas Keating, broke this down brilliantly, I thought. And seeing that what we're really looking for is survival and security. That's one. Affection and esteem. That's two, right? And then the third one is power and control. And if you think about it, each one of those three corresponds almost exactly, I'd say exactly, to the three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. The bread, into the stone into bread, right? Survival, sustenance, security. Affection and esteem, if he were to throw himself down from the parapet of the temple. And power and control, if he were to bow down to the adversary who would give him control. Three temptations. These compulsions that we have as people healed, literally healed, by this process of the way. And Jesus isn't telling us to do anything that he doesn't do himself. He did this in that process, in that time before he came to teach his own people in his ministerial life. He had to go through the process himself, healed himself, came out of that wilderness as one with the Father, seen as a mystic sees all of the connection that we normally miss before we express our contemplative journeys. How do we know that something is really ours? Of those things that you want, power and control, affection and esteem, survival, security, how do we know that something is really ours free and clear, that we really do possess it? It's such a slippery thing to think that you have something and not really know. The only way we know we possess anything, whether it's a car or a home or a watch, is when we can give it away with no strings attached. Absolutely free and clear. Bank doesn't own this. I own this. I can give it to you. It's yours. Whenever we can give something away, completely strings attached, then we know it is really ours. 
if you want security, if you want power, if you want esteem, when you provide that for another person, the empowerment, the affection, whatever they need for their survival, you finally know that those things are yours. And especially if you give it to someone who doesn't deserve it, someone you don't really understand or don't really like, someone who can't pay you back. Because then you can finally understand how God continues to shower you with everything, despite how unlovely you know that you really are. That's it. When it leaves us in the direction of the undeserving, then we understand how the love flows. And we can only love because God loved us first. We are simply a conduit. We are simply reprocessing. We are simply rearranging the deck chairs because they're already there for us. Jesus will never, our Father will never ask us to do something that they haven't already done themselves. We love because he first loved us. The sermon lays out God's quality of life. This anavim spirit that we're talking about, this poor in spirit, this gentleness, this meekness, this willing to mourn, this willing to be disturbed. It's almost blasphemous to our ears to think that that depicts our God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of the universe. How in the world are we supposed to understand God as unassuming, as humble, as somehow dependent and vulnerable? But Jesus is saying, If you can't, you will never know the radical depth of the gift that is being offered to you. And the only way you're going to be able to cross that hurdle, that void, is to experience it yourself. When you experience what that feels like, then you will know why the Father is the way the Father is. Until we can cross over into these attributes, we will never be able to see God. We will never be able to see life as it really is. And we'll never be able to recognize the truth or the freedom of kingdom right here and right now as Jesus is trying with everything in him, everything at his command to point toward and evoke in us. It's up to us. The table has been set but we have to pick up and eat. Let's pray. Father, thanks for being such a great table setter. It's an amazing feast that you have given us. It's more than we can possibly comprehend. Help us to stop trying to comprehend it and find a way just to sit at the table. Find a way to just begin to take steps, to take bites, to do the one thing that we need to do, that we know how to do, which is just to breathe through our moments, to be really present, and to let everything flow from that presence. If we can just start there, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to stop overthinking. Help us to stop worrying about the things that we can't understand that we don't know if are interpreted correctly. And just begin. Just pick a course and go. Always in the direction of connection. Always in the direction of relationship. And let that instruct us about the scriptures, about our faith in terms of the way we understand it, and not the other way around. 
Thank you, Lord, for everything that you give us in your constant attention. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's all stand.